0: Hello and welcome to Motherfucker. We have an exciting episode for you today, which myself and Powder talk to a dairy woman in London called Mae McDade. As this is a podcast about words and their meaning, certain terms and their misuse can often lead to problems for administrators, for researchers. One of these is the term, the UK. What does it actually mean? As opposed to Britain, Great Britain, England... What happens when these terms are used interchangeably? How does this affect how migration from Northern Ireland is measured or noticed in Ireland? What happens when we talk about differences between the UK and Ireland? How much valuable information is being lost in these chasms of misunderstanding? It's a great episode. Can't wait for you to hear it. But first, a message. Mother well, folklore is made possible by the support of listeners who support the show on Patreon. Listeners like Holly Bauer and Oscar Akira. Girl Mila Mogwiv, Holly, August Oscar. Patreon supporters get access to bonus content, such as live episodes on Wednesday nights at the moment. We've recently had guests like Neve Lear and Ronnie Hill This particular Wednesday we had Carl Kinsler, the star columnist from Joe.e. Carl is actually leaving Joe this week and we got to speak to him right after he announced it. And he gets some very interesting views on the state of journalism in general in ireland at the moment as you can listen to this clip right now do do we have a problem with one trick pony columnists who kind of do the same version of the same article every every two weeks yeah 100 so? because it's you know obviously the substance of the article can change but in general you have a lot of columnists who they it's a very clear goal which is to rabble rouse and to incite anger and to make people annoyed it has a double effect because you make your enemies angry at what you're saying and then you make your allies angry at like the subject of your article, you know, whether that's like immigration or like travelers or like rights for women or whatever, you know, like you'll have all the, you know, all these columnists who rail against all of these extremely basic issues of human rights, uh, which is just something that somehow became normal. Like somehow it's a normal thing in society that we accept on the basis of everyone's entitled to an opinion that we can have writers who will frequently go against what are just accepted tenets of like basic human rights if you decide to support the show on patreon you can get access to that live episode or that video episode as well as the recent ones and there are also discount codes for art by kirsten Shield and a range of other benefits and now the show The Headstuff of Podcast Network. Welcome to Mother Folklore, a podcast of words. Irish. Irish words. And words from Ireland. I'm Derek O'Shea.
1: And I'm Pader Ivonik and we are still in the midst of the quarantine session. Stay at home. Stay unless at home. you're unless unless you've just come from a lovely Green List destination like um Gibraltar or Greenland. Or Monica. Oh, Monaco. Well, I can. I'm glad I can finally get the yacht back from Monaco.
0: It's great, and, and, and I just, I think it's it's so interesting. because some of these green list places don't even have freaking airports.
1: Yeah, <laughs> like oh, yeah. And, and the ones that do, the ones that do, they don't. Um, they don't have direct flights to Ireland. So I don't know. Maybe maybe it's just that you know the 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 millionaires who have or the billionaires who have yachts in Gibraltar and Monaco. Um, that it's important that they're 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 included on the list.
0: Absolutely, and this is this does tie back to the fact that very recently um, some of these poor billionaires who are trapped, uh, trapped in Ireland, during Corona and might might miss their tax uh, residency uh, get out time. There was a bit of compassion was shown to them.
1: Oh, I'm glad, you know, because if anyone needs compassion, it's 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 billionaires.
0: Yes, absolutely. You know, it, it's it's the idea that a billionaire might be forced to pay, you know, um, a proportionate amount of tax in respect of their own income because they. A resident in a country for the time deemed for residency purposes in the laws that everyone else obeys, you know. It just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that people could see the bigger picture.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we this went anti-capitalist in a hurry. I wasn't expecting it to happen in the first two minutes of the podcast, but hey, yeah. it's welcome all the same. But listen, some of those, some of those places on the green list. I mean, by. So I've been doing a lot of online quizzes lately because because um, basically I can't go out. Like, you know, we can't go to the pub. I'm not interested in substantial meals and 105 minutes. I really love the social aspect of the pub. So I've been sitting at home doing a lot of geography quizzes. And some of those places listed on the green list, they're not really countries. Like Greenland is an overseas territory. Gibraltar is a crown dependency. Mm-hmm. You know, so, I mean, I suppose it sort of begs the question, what, what is a country like? What do, what 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 defines a country?
0: This is a thing, and I because I, I know when when um, during the, during the peace process, some Americans who were kind of um, who were didn't think that the president of the United States should be as in, in, intimately involved in the situation in Ireland. Said, well, you know, this is like. Um, you know this 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 country is, is about the size of south carolina you know is the is the pres, is the prime minister of ireland as as important a global figure as the governor of south carolina and you think well what is a country What where, where, where does it begin where does it end and we came up with this one one of the two two of the worst inventions in human history are flags and borders
1: i know i like flags i do like flags i'm a bit of an amateur vexillologist <laughs> <laughs>
0: I've, I've, Unfortunately, vex me very much.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's. I'm done. I'm done. Well, Bring the guest in. I'm done. I'm done. Okay. I'm
0: done. So, sp- speaking of <laughs> flags, borders, and what actually is and isn't a country, a, a regular occurrence is this idea that one um, of one of our, our neighbours. What what is it? Is it um, people? Like I often find sometimes around the world, people use the phrases England, Britain, and the United Kingdom interchangeably. Mm, they really um, shouldn't. No, they're. There's, they're specifically different, but how different? And what is the consequence? Is it a harmless mistake? Well, someone who can t- tell us more about this is, uh, is Maeve McDade, McDade. Fault, you given on the phone Maeve.
2: Hi. Hiya. Sorry. I was enjoying your chat so much. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Welcome to the show, Maeve. Uh, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about yourself?
2: Uh, sure. I am in the... I'm a PhD student at the University of Sheffield, and I'm submitting in two months. And I've said that out loud so that I'm now accountable to myself, <laughs> and I must-
1: <laughs> You're on the clock there. That's it.
2: Exactly. The the ticker starts from here. Um, no, I've had a, a fantastic uh, three years interviewing retired Irish people in East London about their lives, their migration journeys, and um, their processes, and now their retirement in England. And um, it's been uh, really wonderful. Um, I guess I'm also uh, an activist and uh, co-owner of Clapham Community Football Club, which is very exciting. Um, uh, Anti-fascist kind of movement to be a part of in London.
1: Oh, cool. Is that like a shared ownership model? Like the, you're not one of two co- Do you own a football club, basically, is what I'm like? <laughs> or are you...
2: Yeah, I'm one of the millionaires you were talking yeah, about earlier. It, like, gonna,
1: like, have you brought the yacht back from Monaco? <laughs> <laughs>
2: No, it's, it's totally uh, community-run and member-led. So each and every member has a, a, a stake in the club and how it's run. Uh, it's really fantastic. Um, and, yeah, we've been running on this model now for about two years, and... I am very excited to uh, announce um, that we are uh, owning our own ground from what would be tomorrow, but I guess from Friday, the 24th of July, we officially own our own ground. It just means that all the money that comes in, we can pitch straight back into our community work, our activism, supporting schools, supporting women in football, supporting refugees in football. It's just all very exciting. That's
1: class. Are you selling the naming rights to the stadium? It's
2: already named. It's been named since 1880. So it's the Old Spotted Dog Ground. Oh, that's Um, so cool. Yeah. We are, however, going to be naming the bar, and apparently I'm not allowed to call it Free Dairy Corner. (laughs) So we won't do a vote um, to our number, but I'm going to try and push for Free Dairy Corner to be an option.
1: (laughs) Oh, my word, that's amazing. That's so cool. It's kind of like um, Bohemian Football Club in Dublin is done on a sort of a community shareholder model it's not quite direct ownership but the, the members of the club have an equal say in the management of the club and and they too have sort of created this anti fascist um very sort of leftist bent for themselves and it's really great like it's fantastic their community activism has been amazing and even though I'm not a Bose fan yeah, it's good to been, see
2: yeah we've done uh, quite a bit of work with the um Bose fans and I first met a few of them over in Calais at a refugee tournament and by default, and because I'm very um, uh, unideological, just immediately made the Bose my um, soft fan, uh, my soft fan base. Like I think they have some of the best fans in the world in terms of their kind of internationalism and solidarity work. I think they're brilliant. So shout out to Bose fans.
0: Absolutely. We don't. We don't. We we don't talk enough about sport on this, you know, because people who like sport, they like. There's nowhere where people who like sport can find out sport-related news, sport-related chat. There's nothing online or offline where they can do that. Ah, oh, Dad. Are, are we neglecting? Dad,
1: what are you? We get one guest who's able to chat football with me, and you just you ruin it by bringing us back on topic. All right. Okay. Fine. We want to talk about countries. You want to talk about the United Kingdom, which is. Does the
0: United United Kingdom does have a football team?
2: (laughs) Well, yes, exactly. No, Um, and it doesn't even have a rugby team. I'd say I'd say that the United Kingdom is obviously unique because it is a sovereign state, but that's made up of countries rather than regions. Its components Mm -hmm. and. It's also not just countries; it's a statelet. So I would actually argue that um, Northern Ireland—I would call it the North of Ireland—but for the ease of kind of getting through the legal terms, uh, because I think it's important, it is the legal state of Northern Ireland. Um, but it's not—it's not a country in and of itself by any stretch of the imagination. No, it's come up for me both personally and professionally, and being confronted with what the UK actually means. It's not a word that I grew up with in Derry, although we've always been aware that we exist within a United Kingdom legal structure. Um, it's often called, you know, the, the UK government, although representation from the North has always been, um, inconsistent. Um, and, also the laws haven't applied um this has come up again through the repeal of the eighth movement where a lot of the language i was mm. very active in that i was very proud to be part of that movement but i was constantly confronted with people saying abortion is legal in mm. the uk and coming from Derry, that obviously was not the case and that's at the point where i decided that i maybe couldn't let it slide so much anymore that it is harmful it was at the point in 2017 and um, when the coalition government came in that most people in Britain didn't even realise that, uh, that abortion was totally criminalised within the UK, as in, in Northern Ireland, that there was actually trials going on and there was actually people facing imprisonment. So I think that confrontation really helped to move the conversation along of It's no longer um, harmless or apolitical to talk about the UK as a homogenous bloc or as an identity. Mainly, as I say, it came about because of conversations around abortion rights, but also we need to look at identity and how important identity is to individuals. Mm. I, like many other people um, from the six counties, from Northern Ireland, are a part of the legal structure of the United Kingdom, but we don't have a United Kingdom identity. Irish is our identity. And there are some people in the six counties that refer to themselves as British or that even identify as Northern Irish, but our identity is Irish. And that's not captured for or taken seriously whenever people look at the UK. I am an Irish migrant to Britain. Specifically, I'm an Irish migrant to England in academia in the academy we often find articles and people carelessly saying Irish migration to the UK what does that speak mm. to Irish citizens from the six counties that they're not mm. uh, visible mm. that they don't count
1: that's that's the nub of it like if i if i took a job in in nury or belfast would i theoretically in an academic treatise be referred to in the same way my friends who emigrated to london are you know, exactly. would I be an Irish migrant to the to the UK? Even though I certainly wouldn't feel it, and culturally there wouldn't be uh, there wouldn't be that migration shift because I'd only be going to to Belfast or to to Newry for for work. You know, like my 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 brother-in-law used to work in Belfast, what and he lived in he lived in North County Louth, um, like so he would get the train from Dundalk to Belfast. Is that is that emigration every morning at seven o'clock? Yeah. <laughs> you know.
2: And I think that's the point, you know, particularly in the border countries, there's always been a kind of natural um, uh, overlap and crossover between work and, and play. You know, I, I grew up half in Donegal and 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 this is a, an interesting point as well. When I first moved here, uh, people would extensively tell me how, well, I wasn't really Irish because I was from Derry. Uh, I remember at one mm. point I was 19 and an Irish person from Dublin saying to me yeah you're not really Irish to tell people that I was from Derry I wasn't embarrassed to be from Derry but I was embarrassed about having to fight with people every time I told them where I was from because they'd either meet it with do you mean London Derry?" or you're basically British or yeah but you're from the UK and you know given that straight out of a kind of you know Uh, a peace process in terms of really defining your identity that being significant to that to have it ripped away so socially and casually uh, was such a formative kind of time in my time in England I've obviously come a long way since then and I'm now unapologetically you know very proud to be a dairy person from Ireland but that's still met with people who want to correct me or tell me where I'm actually from and um, and that and that definitely happens on both sides, on both Britain and uh, kind of from people from the twenty six counties as well. So
1: it's, uh, it's kind of a an unfortunate erasure, like. And it seems like I'm I'm so glad you mentioned that because that was going to be my point that it does seem to happen on both sides. That you know you're in you're an Irish migrant to uh, Britain, more specifically to England, even more specifically to Yorkshire, uh, and you know, that like within within that paradigm, you're surrounded by people who don't really acknowledge the existence of Northern Ireland. And then when you come home to Ireland, you've got a, a predominant amount of the population here who are kind of correcting your lived experience and erasing your own opinion of your own identity. And and that's, it's, it's just so unfortunate that it happens on both sides. It's absolutely ridiculous.
2: Absolutely. I think... And don't get me wrong like I do enjoy like a lot of I I hate phrasing it like this but I do get a lot of social capital by being from Derry. I think Derry girls has done a great uh service to Derry people across the world. It's suddenly very cool mm. and popular to be from Derry. Um but I do think I'm I'm a lot more serious about how I engage with people about why they get to own Irish identity. So it's interesting that second and third generation Irish people have sometimes more social access to an Irish identity than people born on the island of Ireland. Um, I think the same is true to a certain extent of the diaspora kind of across the world. And, uh, you know, I've had Irish Americans telling me, well, I'm not really Irish. You know, their parents are, or their grandparents are from Mayo, so they're more Irish than me, even though I was born in Derry. and. Um, Oh, I also just need to say although my PhD is at Sheffield, I do live in London. I'm very much a part of a London Irish community as well. Um it is confusing, but I do live in London.
1: Oh, so you're not a Yorkshire separatist. I'm so disappointed. No,
2: no. One of my one did, of my
1: favourite independence movements around the world.
2: Well, I did live in Liverpool for eight years, the thirty third county of Ireland, after all. <laughs> yeah. Um mm-hmm. And yeah, I'm just recovering a bit from last night's ceremonies. I'm um, a bit of a Liverpool FC supporter. Sorry, I'm talking about football again. I can't help it. <laughs> I, I
1: think I fi- I think football is really, really useful for defining, hmm. um, you know, how we look at countries and the likes. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm yes. absolutely delighted that we, we can bring up football again. I'm delighted it was Maeve who brought it up again and not me. Because
0: when you look at it... I, but- I actually was about to say the same thing because there's... Sure um, you were. Fo- sure you were. A huge sports but, fan. But... But football is football. <laughs> football teams, particularly, have have a huge significance in 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 terms of actual local and um, national identities. And the fact that the UK doesn't have a football team, but England does, and also that the, the local derbies. An English guy was once saying that all the local football derbies in the big in the big cities in England they were originally. Typically, um, cities would have a Catholic team and a Protestant team, and then gradually these uh, these loyalties were kind of eroded over time.
1: Yeah, it's true. It's true to a certain extent. I mean, there are some some cities where where that wasn't the case, but certainly in places like Liverpool, that that um that was sort of born out in history. I, I suppose from my point of view, what's really really significant is that um, you know the UK doesn't have a football team. There's England, Northern Ireland, Scotland and Wales who play uh, under FIFA rules. But then when the Olympics came around, um, they wanted to enter a football team. But in the Olympics, Great Britain competes as Great Britain, not as the UK. So yet again, you had sort of Northern Ireland shelved, put to one side. And then they were trying to pick the best players from England, Scotland and Wales and and then when it came to Ireland, it's like no, we we can't put in a football team because we've got two football associations on this island. So even though we compete as a 32 <laughs> county or an all island country in most sports, uh, unfortunately the Olympics is not it's not for us like in in football. And and Britain Britain were like the UK they're kind of more than happy to sort of let's park Northern Ireland. We don't need to talk about that. Let's get a Great Britain football team in there, uh, which again kind of unfortunate really.
2: So so for what it's worth, I I'm I'm quite okay with the less interference Britain has to do with Northern Ireland. Um <laughs> <laughs> just to be really clear, my my issue isn't the desire to be recognized by Britain. It's a desire for people to understand that we categorically haven't been. And in terms of now, obviously we're on a stage where we had of talked a year ago, you know, we had the worst laws for abortion rights we now have even better laws than the rest of Britain um, in terms of legality in terms of the legal framework for abortions but you know I think whenever it suits the British government to say you know we will take control over certain amounts of the of the devolution when it actually comes to kind of civil and human rights there's often been a massive gap so growing up um, under you know kind of Stormont common, there's always been de facto direct rule. There's never really been um, a clear devolved system in Northern Ireland. Stormont's never really had independence. It's not sat for longer than it has sat overall. It's not an effective system of governance. So we've always had to depend on direct rule from Westminster, it, whether or not it's called that, it's been the kind of civil servants in Whitehall that have been um, running, running the state. The problem with that is uh, we don't have any democratic processes that kind of really affect normal changes that would happen in other democracies. Westminster were isn't accountable to us. The fact that we had to go to Westminster directly and ask British MPs to make laws for people in Northern Ireland, it really isn't a democratic kind of system of of operating, but also those laws came from Westminster and I think that's why it's important. So just to kind of sum up that point, because it can get quite clunky, there mm. is a UK government, but we don't have much representation in it. And the representation that we do have is from the DUP, which I'd hardly say is kind of uh, representative of the majority of people in, um, in Northern Ireland. I... Don't think that Westminster is fit for purpose to legislate for North Ireland. I think that all of the problems that are there exist exactly because North Ireland was created by Westminster. Uh, it's an historic problem that still has its legacy felt today. But for me, on a purely academic sense, whenever people talk about the UK as if it has a coherent or consistent legal structure in all the regions and that's what academia is often it's looking at the kind of personal or legal impacts of everyday life in different in different capacities by talking about Irish migration to the UK you're ignoring the people from the six counties who are right. Irish and moved to Britain by talking about the UK experience you're failing to account for the fact that there was a Uh, you know, the troubles and uh, peace process that happened in one of those regions. We can't be comparable to people who grew up in Bath. No shade
1: on Bath specifically, but yeah, absolutely. All
2: of my best friends are from Bath. But (laughs) I mean, I think that one of the biggest arguments that I can anticipate coming towards me is that you can say that about any region. And that is certainly true, except that the British Army didn't have a presence in any other region in the UK, except for Northern Ireland. And that has had such a material impact Mm. on existence and identity and it's also something that british people are rarely confronted with i recently had to write an article because on the victoria Derbyshire show and um, she had mentioned well you know we wouldn't know what rubber bullets are like in the uk
1: oh god and i remember that that was such nonsense
2: yeah and and obviously i felt so compelled to write something because i think the majority of british people really do just have a total blind spot on what happened within the uk borders Mm. Um, so sorry if I'm rambling a bit, but I think this is why it's important. Yeah. But I think, crucially, hearing other Irish people talk about the UK is I think they never mean the UK. They always mean Britain. So I guess also maybe using this platform to say really challenge yourself on why you're using the UK and do you really mean the UK? Do you yeah. mean Britain? Because in order to kind of decolonise our language and really – Look at what the UK means. It's the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. That's, that's a logical extension, right? And I doubt that's what people really mean.
1: Can I just delve into something there? Just this idea of, of talking about the UK as if it's in any way homogenous. I mean, we've always known, or at least we should have always known, that like Scotland has a completely different legal system to England and Wales. And even as a devolved region since devolution, Wales has a certain set of powers that can mark itself as separate to, to England. As, as we've seen, much to my delight uh, over the COVID-19 pandemic with English tourists being turned back by Welsh police. Um, I have just lived for those Twitter videos over the last couple of months. They've been a rare bright spot in a very, very dark period of time. But like add to that, the, the you know, the, obviously the unique history of the six counties of Northern Ireland. I mean, there's no way we should be talking about a homogenous British experience, never mind a homogenous UK experience. Why, why do you think it is people do that? Is it ignorance, laziness or, or some form of wishful thinking?
2: So I do have a theory. Um, I... I've spent a lot of time interrogating why it bothers me so much and I really wanted the evidence to kind of back up um, like how I was feeling um, and that's not necessarily methodologically a good way to find something. If you have a problem and you just look for things to back you up it's not something that I'm saying is ethical but I really wanted to interrogate why I was feeling this way. And basically when I was growing up we never heard of the United Kingdom and Derry and, and certainly but what my research has kind of led me to, and this is not research that like, I'm going to publish, it's just something that I've been so fascinated by, the rise of uh, fascist groups in Britain in particular in the 60s to 80s, like the National Front, the British National Party and other kind of splinter groups, as well as a global insight into what being British and the British Empire actually meant saw the UK rise um, in vernacular and use. So I actually did a search um, that showed Britain going out of fashion as a word consistently from the 1980s, simultaneously mm-hmm. where the UK and the United Kingdom saw a rise. So normal middle class or educated English people were no longer comfortable saying that they were British, but that they were from the UK. So, for them, because it was uh, an an acronym, uh, the United Kingdom for them sounded much more palatable than being from Britain or British. So, I think this is how it kind of socially and casually happened, but... What that actually means is for English people to feel better about themselves saying they're from the UK, that's the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, you almost want to say it back to people because then as soon as they're confronted with what it actually stands for, they might feel a wee bit more uneasy. You very rarely find people in Scotland saying they're from the UK, you very rarely find people in Wales saying they're from the UK. It's a very uniquely English phenomenon where people identify as being from the UK because associations with being English and being British has got uh, too many problems associated with it, right? People from the Republic of Ireland, in my experience, and talking very um, openly and casually with people, it's just easier for them to talk about the UK and the US that they never really mean. Northern Ireland, they don't see Northern Ireland just being part of the UK, but while it is, and while our laws, and while our system of governance is so um, dysfunctional, it's actually an important, you know, this is a podcast on words, it's such an important point of, well, we have to be clear, and we have to correct that. You know, we look at the uh, Black Lives Matters uh, protesting, and people are talking about a UK police force. There, there isn't a UK police force, and the Metropolitan Police is exceptionally racist and should absolutely be you know taken to town and kind of the extreme levels of racism but if we talk about a UK police force then that kind of belies or um, it undersells the kind of inherent problems that each and every UK uh, uh, region force has so the Scottish police force is a very yes. different system from the Northern Irish, like the PSNI, was born of the uh, um, Royal Ulster Constabulary, the RUC, kind of notoriously one of the, the most violent and reprehensible police forces in the world.
0: It's really interesting you mentioned that because when when the twenty six counties became uh, became independent, they um, the the legal system was more or less kept, the civil service structure is more or less kept, the parliamentary democracy system was was more or less kept and the president's functions were similar to um, the Viceroy's in a number of respects. But one thing that was chucked was certain street names, certain statues and the police. Yeah, the police, the, 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 the biggest administrative change was the actual replacement of the of the of the constabulary structures that had existed with uh, the Garda Síochana, mm. uh, would that be correct, Pat, or would you say? Yeah,
1: yeah. The civic guards came in as a sort of a. It was a symbolic act to get rid of what was a very militarised police force and what was seen by people as as an occupying force. Um, so the Royal Irish Constabulary and the Dublin Metropolitan Police, even though they were largely almost entirely staffed by Irish people, um, they were just seen as as part of the old guard and it had to be had to be gotten rid of. Um, surprisingly enough, you, you you know, you mentioned that they felt no such uh, antipathy towards the, uh, the civil service, uh, you know, the real government of Ireland and actually held on to a huge amount of the administrators and the senior civil servants mm. who had served under the British government um, and, you know, held on to a lot of the cops as well. But I think moving to an unarmed, non-military uh, police force was, it. look, it was a positive step at the time. It was probably the right thing to do
0: and there was a and there was if echoing what's happening now there was a lot of um statue removal and street name revision
1: yeah possibly not enough if you ask certain cer- certain certain county councillors in cork definitely not
0: enough <laughs> well that's um one, very one, one yes. thing that
1: is interesting and it's worth noting and it's a total segue but like that the street name removal and the streets renaming and things like that that had begun long before independence, uh, and it be, it began as like the the democratic electoral process started to take into account a, a sort of a, a more of a a broader spectrum of views. So you had like O'Connell Street was being known as O'Connell Street long before uh, independence. It, it, like the shift from Sackville Street sort of began um, in the early nineteen tens uh, before the Easter Rising before. Nineteen nineteen and the War of Independence before the declarations, uh, before the the treaty, um. So it was kind of you know that was that was long happening, but yeah, there was a lot of statue removal in the few years afterwards. Like we sent the statue of Queen Victoria to Melbourne, um. Rather than just just reckon it, we just said, "Does anybody want this statue?"
0: Which I thought was pretty sound. Uh, some s- some money must have changed hands there. I'll sell you a statue. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I was going to ask if she had been quartered and sent to like four different parts of Australia, but no, it sounds like... <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, we we um, we um stuck our head up on the border as a warning.
2: <laughs> so I think what's really interesting is um, before partition, Ireland as an island has 10,000 years of shared history. And it was almost like, you know, people. And I, I think it's especially interesting coming up to the 100th anniversary of partition, you will have people celebrating their liberation from from the British kind of rule, but it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, unilateral. It wasn't across the island. Yeah. And, and yet we're the ones who are made to feel shame for not really being Irish whenever up until 100 years ago, everybody was kind of under this uh, dynamic. I, I think it's a really interesting concept to look at our shared uh, history and then all of a sudden it's not shared anymore and we're different and less Irish. I think that that's... Um, it's such a shame. It's probably the most yeah. effective thing the British could do was to divide us, not just with a land border, but also with this kind of ideological or, um, you know, emotional kind of difference.
1: But, uh, but I, th- I think I think maybe a large part of that is just down to the idea that, like, while there's thousands and thousands of years of shared history on the island, it's it's a cultural shared history, and the idea of Ireland as an independent nation in the world is very young. Like it's very young. The The idea that everybody on this island was part of one nation was kind of like we've discussed it on the podcast before. It, it didn't occur to people before the Norman invasion. You know, yeah. it just it just wasn't a thing. We, we had a shared culture, but there were loads of different nation states on the island. And then that was kind of retrofitted by Sharon Kate and Cates and then Forrest Fassar Aaron and in the early 1600s, around about the time of the Flight of Earls he started to reminisce and, and write this historical fiction about high kings and how we were once this great nation in the world. And that, that that's kind of, that's resonated in the Irish psyche, but realistically, we don't have that experience of being one nation. And I think that kind of feeds into this unfortunate partitionist mentality around a huge amount of Irish people who identify as Irish and that we in the Republic of Ireland are actively telling them they're not. And that's what's really, really shameful.
2: No, I I agree. And I think, but that's what I mean about, you know, the the effectiveness of like imperialism and colonialism is exactly to to divide people on geographical and you know ideological boundaries that are constructed. They're not real. They don't exist, but, you know, they're so powerful in terms of how people like understand the world, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, you only need to look at like, so many people, just lines on a map. Like, it's, it's absolutely unreal. The effect that imperialism has had right around the world. In one sense, we're lucky that we have an island that we can say, roughly speaking, on this island, there was a shared culture going back 10,000 years. And hopefully we can work towards a shared culture again in the future, uh, uh, accepting everybody's cultural identity within that, no matter where you're from or, or what you identify as. But like, for other, for other parts of the world, it's just like, some british engineer or, or a civil servant or surveyor with a map just said right that's a country that's a country that's a country and i don't care what the people there think uh, and yeah. yeah like the effect has been staggering
0: yeah and, uh, um... especially when you see a straight line on a map you know that 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 does straight lines, a straight straight lines
1: are bullshit like the border between like uh, benin and togo like a straight line running down like it's what the fuck is that like <laughs> yeah
0: I suppose identities do form kind of over time and stuff and in this in situations when they do so borders do kind of um form naturally uh, that reflect kind of um the natural movement of people but uh rarely straight there's no straight lines in nature yeah. we'll come back to borders in a moment But before that i'd like to introduce you to another show on the headstuff podcast network called what am politics which even featured our very own patter way back on episode 22 When it comes to understanding political issues, I am a self-confessed toddler. That's why I've enlisted the help of Steve, my politically savvy drinking buddy, to help me better understand politics. Every couple of weeks we get together and record on topics like what is the politics of language, what is Watergate, how the internet is killing democracy. We take these big issues and we break them down into silly little comedic bite-sized bits. If you like the sound of that, then search for What Am Politics in your podcast app of choice or find us here on the Headstuff Podcast Network. Few years back, there was um I think it was on, the, on a BBC news program. They asked a number of people in England to see where where would they draw the border in Ireland if they had an if they had an idea. And a lot of people you kind know, of they just couldn't get it right. And one people a lot they got a lot of criticism in Ireland. People saying these English people they draw drew the border between you know, the Republic and and Northern Ireland, and they drew kind of like a straight line from like Galway to Dublin. <laughs> Or, and sometimes they even drew. So some of them even drew vertical lines, like they just hadn't a uh, hadn't a breeze. But like, if if you didn't know, and say if someone didn't know where the border between Germany and Poland was, you draw a line based on what you think would be logical, and the actual the actual border that exists on the island of Ireland it isn't really logical. If you were going to create two states on one island, you probably wouldn't put a border there.
2: It was, it was very, like, I'm sure you snow, it was obviously just so ideologically driven of the nine counties in Ulster in order to keep a Protestant majority. You know, the provinces are, sorry, the counties were already predetermined. It was just which counties went in in order to allow for a Protestant majority. That's why the border is the shape that it is.
1: Mm. The counties themselves are, of course, we, we, we tend to forget, but they're a construct of, the British administration yeah. at the time, like they're like they're not like our own tribal boundaries are within counties and outside of counties and covering two or three counties. So, like the Kingdom of the Dacia took up half of Waterford. Some of Waterford was in under the rule of the Ormans, who are from Kilkenny. So it was so much more complex, and and now. These counties, I mean, these counties that were constructed by an invading force, they're such a part of our national identity that we have a national sporting competition, an international sporting competition based around that structure. Uh, so, yeah, it's mad. But yeah, it's a, it, it was a huge part of the, 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 the drawing up of the border was, was those counties that would enable uh, the new region to have a unionist, loyalist majority.
2: Yeah. I think something, just to come back to the UK for a minute, because I never, ever let it go. Like, I do have zero kills. I am that <laughs> exact person in, like, the pub who's like, what do you mean, the UK? Do you mean England?
1: <laughs>
2: so, <laughs> that's like, everyone, um, my friends always joke with me about it. Um, I think what's really interesting is, to inverse it, we talk about Brexit, and I think this is going to be such a fascinating, like, can I swear on here? I've
1: just yeah, i done it a me. load of times. Yeah,
2: <laughs> it's going to be such a shit show over the next couple of months. <laughs> um, and but it's not Brexit; it's it's UK exit. They're taking the six countries you know with them, and regardless of kind of my opinion on the EU, it's irrelevant. But it, I think it just further shows exactly how Westminster has never. Um, got the interests of the six countries in mind, like they had overwhelmingly voted to remain. They're even calling it Brexit. And I think that just confuses people. It's just interchanged so extensively. So my friend Brian and I, whenever we were writing about the Good Friday Agreement, we kind of jokingly said, it's not a Brexit, it's a UK exit and we have to get it right. And we got wound up, so the people were laughing at us because they're like, we just, you spend so long trying to get people to not to say the UK. I'm like, no, no, I'm okay with people using it whenever it's correct, whenever mm. it's, like, right, that's fine. It's just never, ever, ever right. And it shouldn't be right. The UK shouldn't exist. It's an absurd kind of concoction of empire. It's, you know, Boris's kind of proudest accolade is his nations all together under one roof and we should do everything we can to break up that union but um, I don't mind it whenever it's right and if anything I would really encourage people to use it correctly but it's just so rare that it's ever used in a correct way but ironically Brexit is one of the times that it is
1: I think um, Brexit being used as a term, like a portmanteau of Britain and exit, yeah. has shown just how willing Westminster would be to throw Northern Ireland under the bus
2: Thank at God. any
1: opportunity.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And like don't get me wrong, I didn't buy the argument that um I didn't buy it for one second that people would be kind of up in arms if there was a hard a hard border between the North and South, I, I, I don't think that that's inevitable, I don't think that that would happen but I also hate this idea that we're also inherently violent uh, the problem is we lack any, any democratic structures to voice our um, concerns and opinions we don't have representative government, the Good Friday Agreement has enshrined sectarianism and given the DUP an unprecedented platform in the last kind of five years, but it's, there's not an inherent violence in the six counties either and the way that we were being used as political footballs by liberals, like, think of what Brexit will do, it will bring the troubles back like, it was genuinely so infuriating and we just us all, to just savages who just want to fight at any cost, which I think is just so deeply unfair and takes away kind of the problem which was the British presence there in the first place that's where the violence came from
1: yeah I think uh, it's kind of to bring it back to football it's like uh, (laughs) there's 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 something that's leveled against footballers all the time that like they get penalized for celebrating in front of the opposition fans and it's called inciting violence yeah and it's it completely and totally erases the the character the personality and the individual experience of the fans you know what I mean, and in in this instance, what what you're looking at is is a kind of a Northern Ireland being used as a talking point and something that completely and totally erases the the individuality, the personality, the character, the lived experience of any of the cultures present in the six counties, be they loyalist, unionist, uh, you know, republican, nationalist, or neither. And it just completely totally takes it away, and it it sort of it, it always always goes back to the othering of people in northern ireland both by people in the republic of ireland and people in britain that like for some reason the violence just happened that there was like this inherent tribal violence and that it was a petty squabble over differences rather than actually being based on things like the, the the demand for civil rights or or the disenfranchisement of of a minority um you know which were the true driving factors behind it
2: yeah absolutely
0: but
1: yeah, sorry for bringing it back to football. It just
0: it just struck me. And you know, just struck Pat, me if <laughs> if football's coming home, where is home? Germany. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> before maybe before we before we wrap up, I mean, maybe um you've you've done some wonderful work with um with retired Irish people in in London and maybe where we can people find out more about that and maybe support it if they wanted to.
2: Oh, um, thank you. I've I've really enjoyed the process of um my research, getting to know uh, hundreds of retired Irish migrants, with them all very generously sharing their time and their journeys uh, with me. I think what's really come out of the research is this um maybe generational divide that whenever they migrated over here in the fifties and sixties, they felt part of a long tradition of. Of people who came over here and, and grafted and who were deeply connected to the generation before. I think there is a little bit of a a loss that newer generations coming over or maybe less interested in in the kind of older Irish community. Um and that's certainly something that, you know, I've kind of maybe noticed there's a bit of a gap in terms of and um, kind of continuing that tradition of supporting uh, the older communities. Now, I have to say through lockdown, that did change considerably. The London Irish Centre did an appeal as well as the London Irish Elders Network. And, and there were things happening all over Britain. It's just that I live in London. I'm more aware of what's happening there. Um, But in terms of people really rallying together, uh, Irish people in England are still the most likely to have early onset dementia. They're more likely to live alone than any other ethnic group. You know, there are still definitely um, some very serious social problems that they're facing. So having people on board to support them has been incredible. But their journeys were hard so that ours could be easy. And I think really championing the voice of that generation of people is, is something that's so important and something that everybody should seek to learn more about. Um, there's an incredible documentary definitely. called The Irish in England. It's on Vimeo. Uh, I'll send you a link you can tweet it out and it's just a beautiful documentary about uh, people who pro- it was made in the 80s about the generation who come in the 30s and 40s and about how they die Irish even if they buried them in London and something they said that really resonated with me and before we had record we kind of touched on it was this idea that they almost felt more Irish than the Irish back home because they had to create a culture here they had to create a space for them to be um, themselves in, a, in an English context. So from the 1950s, they set up their own Irish-specific dance halls because the English ones didn't speak to them. They wanted a home away from home. And now in retirement, they've recreated these kind of dance halls where they meet you know, every week or every month to dance to Irish music, just as they had whenever they first arrived. And there's this real sense of maybe... It, people at home don't need to perform this Irishness. So, um, you know, so they don't have to be confronted with it so much. Whereas for them, it's so important Mm. that they have flags up or wear green or other people might see that as like quite... um, trite or plastic but it's so authentic because it's how they've had to define their identity loving here and it's so deeply political as well they're very unashamed of being Irish and presenting that in ways that might embarrass people back at home but for them it's just so significant to kind of assertively saying and no we've had to be in hiding for so long we were not welcomed whenever we first arrived. For so long, we were othered and isolated and treated badly. But you know what? Now we're in our seventies and eighties, and it's about fuck you to everybody else. We're Irish, and this is how we. <laughs> and it's, it's yeah. so inspiring. Like every time I go, it's like you know that moment in in Braveheart whenever they kill him, and you're like, right, hard, I get the breath? <laughs> It's such a like empowering sense of like, yeah, we are the fighting Irish, but it's in such a beautiful, defiant, uh, you know, it's a, it's a culture in and of itself, but it's it's just incredible. And I, I hate this idea that, oh, you know, the little tea dances, everything about it is political and relevant and important and significant. And I love it. And there are things that will be familiar for people still back at home. Like at the St. Patrick's Day tea dance, they have to order in like 10 times the gravy that they would for an English. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just like, this is incredible. I love it. I'm home away from home and it's, it's so wonderful. Sorry I went on a pure tangent. I just love them. No, but
1: I think, I think you've hit on something amazing. Like, you know, it's very difficult to define what makes Irishness, Irishness, what is Irish culture? But I think you've hit the nail on the head there. It's a massive jonesing for gravy.
2: Yes. (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
1: (laughs) No, it's beautiful. It's lovely. And it's great to see that that expression of identity and culture is, is first of all, that it's possible because God knows, like, I, I mean, I don't know how old you are, Maven. I won't ask, but Derek and I would remember a period in time where the Irish identity in, 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 in Britain would have had to be kept under wraps to a certain extent. And, and it, it's absolutely fantastic mm. to see people celebrating that now
2: yeah and i think like that's obviously you know and ironically given that we were talking about the uk it was derry and belfast accents it was six counties accents that were immediately targeted under the prevention of terrorism act that was created to racially profile irish people and yet you know a lot of people from the south were embarrassed so there was a big division in the irish diaspora in london about yeah, but I'm from I'm from Mayo. I'm not from Belfast. That kind of division as well was really strongly felt by a lot of um uh, people. It also for some of my participants made a lot of people who had maybe identified with unionism more strongly after they migrated here and uh, suffered harassment and discrimination under the police. Suddenly found themselves becoming very anti-British and uh, <laughs> anti-state. Um, but I'd say. You know all of these stories are individual and there was certainly no clear-cut way there was a lot of people who maybe hid their identity or who were embarrassed of it and you know some people still don't trust state uh provisions some people still don't want to go to the doctor because you know they're afraid of not being taken seriously or being you know just accused alcoholism was something that they felt that they were constantly being tarred with uh if they had any Mm -hmm. ailments and lots of stigma around being irish whatever that means right but definitely what I've found is despite lots of really complimentary and contradicting stories from individuals themselves and from you know their spouses and their friends and their families what I found now and I don't want to overly romanticize it because as I say there are a lot of social problems affecting the old Irish community in England uh, at the minute but this definite sense of no one person can claim to be uh, Irish and hold on to Irishness. And it certainly doesn't belong to those who stayed at home in the 26 counties, that it's always been global. It's always been international and it's always been um, in in defiance of the odds, right? Against everything that there's still this kind of strength. And, and that's what I hold on to. That that to me is what Irishness means today.
0: I think that's, that's it. Yeah.
1: That's, I mean, Socrocha, as they
0: say in Irish, like well said. Socrocha. And uh, as we say goodbye, maybe uh, we will end with maybe your, your favourite Irish word or phrase if you
2: have one, maybe. Yes, yeah, so I do have a favourite Irish phrase and it has a double meaning. Um, May the road rise to meet you and also good luck. So, gone on Ah, that's
1: lovely. Yeah, it does have that. Like it's kinda it's it's gone into the English language as made the road, road rise to meet you. But like it's sorta it also means good luck on your journey. And I yeah, I like that. I like that a lot actually. Can I read Bowerlets? That's class. Yeah,
2: it's definitely my favorite.
0: Maeve McDade, thank you so much for joining us today. Girl Thank you so much. So until the next time, it's a slonwhimeshow. And it's a slonwhimeshow. Mind yourselves. you so much for joining us uh, on today's show. We really hope you enjoyed our chat with Maeve McDade.
1: I did. It was absolutely brilliant. Just a reminder that Mother folklore comes out every Friday on the Head Stuff Podcast Network. Uh, you can get us uh, at Mother folklore on Twitter uh, for our curation rotation account. Uh, Derek is at the Irish for on Twitter. And please rate, review, recommend and share the podcast to all your friends. And we have a Patreon.
0: We do indeed. If you want to support the continued production, as many of, of our listeners already have, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash Darroch. You will get access to additional content and other bonus treats, including um, including discount codes for for Irish related content, um, live episodes, and all sorts of all sorts of great crack altogether. We're very grateful for everyone who has supported the show. Thank you very much to Brian. Our Long-suffering and very talented producer, and
1: to Kirsten Scheel, the incredible and talented artist who does our episode art every single week, we are absolutely indebted to these amazing people.
0: Join us next week for another wonderful motherfucker episode coming into your headphones. Slon, slon, slonzies, slon, slonzies, slonzies. This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network.
2: YouTube was like really can Susan, and I'm just like. I refuse to endorse
0: that message. Go <laughs> Sorry, sorry. <laughs> I think I choked my fluff. <laughs>